Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, History, we'll be looking at the big picture of God's rescue story from Genesis to Revelation. Today's speaker is Senior Minister Dee Dee Bacon. I also want to just uh, let you know how pleased I am with our staff team, and particularly I want to point out uh, our staff team that is uh, being pulled together to minister to your children 12th grade to birth. We're thrilled that Lisa Davis has joined our team and uh, she's pulling folks around and making changes. Things are happening down there right next door in children's ministry. Uh, I know many of you with elementary age kids were probably uh, excited to come to church because your kid got to wear their shirt backwards and uh, whatever it takes, I guess. Um, and, uh, and so they're having fun there. I also want you to be aware that uh, Lisa and Aaron and team have pulled together something we call the Family Connect Wall. It's a parent resourcing wall that's available for you to take books. Check them out, please. Let us know you've taken them so that they can be returned because we want to make sure that that's available to others. And so it's, it's a start. It's a resource, and there's more to come. We understand that, that parenting is more than just reading a book. That it's always helpful to have people who you can access to ask for advice. There's always uh, helpful to have people that you can look to to tell you, hey, what to expect. Because like me, I guess when you looked uh, at the child when they were born, there was no instruction manual attached to the big toe, right? Uh, you were like, woohoo. Which really points to the reality that parenting these days is, is tough business. It's tough business. And the more I age, the older I get, and I hate to say that, the more I realize that it's harder these days for young people rearing children in the world. Our world is very, very different than when it was when I was a parent. Very different. Now, if you were to ask me, what is it, Didi, that you would share for parents' advice? Give me three things you would say. Number one, I would say, uh, realize that you as a parent are first on the list. Your names are first on the list as those responsible for rearing this child in godliness, rearing this child to love God and to love people. You're first on the list. Now, there are others on the list, and sometimes others that uh, have to be on the list due to circumstances. I get that. But parents, you're first on the list in training your child how to know Jesus and how to live out that faith. And they're watching. They're watching. It's more than what you say. It's more about what you do and how you model it and the connections you make in teaching them to walk with God as you walk with God. Now, there are two other pieces of practical advice I would share with parents to say, this is what I would make sure you get into your kids First one is this, teach your children to work while they wait. You got it? Work while you wait. Because we live in this, this culture of instant gratification. We can get anything we want with a swipe, a click, or a, a, a payment of plastic, right? And, and so we're training this generation of you don't have to work while you wait. They don't appreciate the value of, of waiting. They actually lose confidence in, in themselves in many ways because they get what they want when they want it. And so they get this distorted view of who they are. And when they get out into the real world, they're totally completely shocked that they have to work while they wait. And so teach your kids to work while they wait, right? 
Teach them to delay gratification. Hey, if you eat one, you can have one now, but if you wait and do your chores, you can have three. Hey, you can't have that now. Why don't you work and we'll save. We'll teach you how to save and and mom and dad will help you out, but you're not going to get that toy, that thing that you want until you put in the work and you save up and then you can pay cash for it. Be patient. Work while you wait. You want that dream job. You want that perfect job. We're going to teach you that doing your chores and doing school is a process of working while you wait. And that you'll learn when you get into the real world, you know one gets their dream job right at first. But what they get is a job where they can work while they wait. And the dream job is then given to them because the world's principle of uh, you'll be blessed with much when you learn how to be faithful with little is the principle of working while you wait. Second thing I would say, which is actually really the third, the third thing is this. Teach your kids please and thank you. I say something like that, and it's like one of those situations I open my mouth and my mother falls out, right? You ever have those? (laughs) Teach your kids please and thank you. Please is uh, good manners. We were taught good manners, good manners, etiquette. What that does is it teaches kids to value other human beings, right? Please is a term of humility. It means that I'm not the center of the universe, that actually I have respect for the individual I'm talking to, I'm asking for help from. They're not obligated to give to me because I am God. No, I'm treating them with value and dignity, recognizing what they do and what they have and what they can give to me needs to be respected and honored. Please is a lesson in humility and teaching people with value. And so when you, when you want something, teach your kids to look them in the eye and say, please. Teach your kids to say thank you. What does thank you do? Well, thank you is very similar to please, but a little different because thank you teaches gratitude. Thank you teaches gratitude, and gratitude is a very, very important lesson for life. Do what your parents did to you whenever you receive something. What did you have to do? I, I've done it. Hey, when my, little, my kids were little, hey, they received it. What do you say? Thank you. Right? What do you say to Mrs. So-and-so? Thank you. Right? Teach your kids to say thank you because it's a training in gratitude, and gratitude is a habit that brings life. Now, the science shows that. I I was reading, and I'm going to share this with you. In his book, uh, Making Grateful Kids, school psychologist Dr. Jeffrey Fromm summarizes his team's research on the benefits of gratitude among young adolescents. We've been talking about young people a lot. They've been in the news with terrible things happening in Florida. I get it. And and we ask the question, what's going on with this young generation? I think a big deal is, is that some of the basics aren't being taught. One of those basics is we're not teaching our kids to say thank you. Why? Because they're ungrateful. And because they're ungrateful, we have a lot of this stuff going on. Listen to what the research shows. He said, he found that grateful young adolescents, kids ages 11 to 13, compared to their less grateful counterparts, are happier, more optimistic, have better social support from friends and family, are more satisfied with their school, family, community, friends, and themselves, and give more emotional support to others. They're also physically healthier and report fewer physical symptoms such as headaches, stomach aches, and runny noses. 
The research also found that grateful teens, those 14 through 19, compared to less grateful teens, are more satisfied with their lives, use their strengths to better their community, are more engaged in their schoolwork and hobbies, have higher grades, and are less envious, depressed, and materialistic. We want the best for our kids, and that's sometimes why we're motivated to be what's called helicopter parents, right? We want the best for them. We want them to be healthy, eat the right food. We want them to, to, to be emotionally sound. We want them to go and have the best education so they might have the best opportunities in life. Well, what I'm telling you is, is that the research shows that teaching your kids gratitude is one of the best things you can do to prepare them for success and health in life. Gratitude brings life. Gratitude is the appropriate response to receiving a gift. And guess what we find in Scripture? What we find in Scripture is a continual call to those who are blessed by God to be grateful. There's a direct correlation between the gift of God given to us through Jesus and the call for an appropriate response, and that appropriate response bring gratitude. Rick referred to the scripture today, and I'm going to go back to it. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 comes after Romans chapter 11. How about that? No. Romans chapter 12 comes after Paul's explanation, and we've been using Romans as the base text of this entire series. Today's the last in this history series. We get into something new next week. But Romans has been the basis of our conversation regarding history, regarding looking at God's plan from the beginning and connecting all the parts of the Bible on how they work and show God's work in this world. It's a story between God and man, between God and us. His story, my story, eventually become our story. And so Romans is an explanation of the good news. It's an explanation from the Apostle Paul who says, hey, by the way, first of all, I want you to understand that the bad news is, is that the way to be made right with God by following the law, whether you are a Jew or non-Jew, Gentile, uh, that way is closed. You can't earn your place in heaven, you can't earn a right relationship with God by your competence. All of us fail. All of us fall short of the glory of God, and all of us are qualified to receive the punishment. That due to all who break the law, that's fair, right? Break the law, suffer the penalty. The way of the law is broken, but the way of grace is open. And that's what the subject material of Romans chapters 1 through 11 is all about. He's talking about, hey, this is what it means to be made right with God by grace through faith. This is how it works. This is how it looks. And so he gets to 12, and he comes to the point where he takes a shift. He says, now that we've gone through that, I want you to just take a moment to look in your rearview mirror and just remember that and understand that what I have explained to you now is the basis for motivation to what I want you to do as your appropriate response to what I've shared about God's grace. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, there it is, rear view mirror, right? In view of what I've just told you about God's grace, 
Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober, with with grounded, with appropriate judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed, I know you like me saying that word, has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In view of God's mercy, what is the appropriate response of those of us who have been made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, those of us that have accepted the gift given to us by grace and entered into the way of living with God by His Spirit in our day-to-day, what is the appropriate response? He says, offer your body as a daily sacrifice. What does that mean? Well, to sacrifice something means to give it over, and typically it would be uh, giving over something by by sacrificing, by killing it, by giving up the life that, that this thing, this living animal had to, to, the, to God you serve. But it can also mean giving up something of value to you. So you can sacrifice money, you can sacrifice time, you can sacrifice anything that you consider value and give ownership over to that which has greater value to you. To sacrifice basically means to give, Right? And he says, you need to be a living sacrifice. This is a present continuous action. This is something you do on a continuous basis. It's a life thing. Daily give what? Your bodies. Daily give your life. Daily give your day-to-day. Daily give your steps, your actions. You're going to work. Your work, your conversations. Your interactions with the family, your friendships, your, your, your viewing habits on TV, your spending habits with money. Give that all as a thank you to God. Give it all. Learning, reordering your mind, setting God's principles, understanding God's will, His word, and His ways, and living by it. But then there's more. He says, not only that... Not only do you live in a manner that that honors God, daily giving to God, but also you recognize that God places you in a community, a body, he says, where you're a, a member, one part of many, who are all pursuing together the purposes of God. In other words, he says part of your giving, part of your response is to be a participant in a community of faith called the body, but we understand and know he refers to the church. So I don't think it's too far for us to say this. The appropriate response to God's grace is to love God and to love each other. Why don't you fill that in there? The appropriate response to God's grace is to love God and to love each other. We see that, right, in the text of Romans 12. The appropriate way is to show your appreciation, your thank you. Paul's almost saying, now that I've explained this to you and you've received the gift, what do you say? Thank you. 
How do you say thank you? I say thank you by dedicating my day-to-day to love God and to love other people in the body of faith that he places in me so that I can train to love others also outside of the body of faith as I reach them with God's love. The appropriate response to God's grace is to love God and to love each other. So, on the last day of our trip in January to Israel, we did a brutal tour of the old city of Jerusalem. All the high points, primarily of the Christian faith. It was pretty awesome. One of the last places we visit was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is a church, and there's multiple churches because that's what they did, right? You build a church on a holy site, and you build another one over it, which, you know, you want to make grander than the one that you built and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built over what you could say is the holiest site of our Christian faith. It's the church that is built over the site of what we would call Golgotha, the place of the skull, the location where Jesus was tacked up by nails on a cross and executed by crucifixion by the Romans at the behest of the Jewish leadership. Not far from that place, because it's an old uh, quarry, it's a limestone quarry that, that was there. There's a lot of caverns and holes, and they're not far from the place. Apparently also is the place they say Jesus was laid, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, where Jesus was laid there, and we know that he's not there anymore because he was laid there on Friday night, but on Sunday he came out, which we're going to celebrate in Easter, right? And so under the church of the Holy Sepulcher, is the holiest sites of our faith, the the location of the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what you have there at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher is that you have six of the oldest Christian sects or denominations that have laid claim to certain parts of the church as their own, right? You've got the Arminians, the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Catholic, the Coptics, which are Egyptian, Ethiopians, and the Syriacs. There's six. There's, and there's, there's major players and, and minor players. And the way the major players get bigger, bigger space to, to look after as their own, and the minor players only get a little bit. And so there are sections of the church that belong to specific Christian denominations, and then there are sections of the church that apparently are for all of them to share. And over time, these Christian denominations have had to set up a series of rules governing how they're to move between the different parts of the church into each other's territories and how they're to uh, deal with those ter- parts that, that are all shared in their responsibility. And, and some of this has led to quite some serious tensions. There are some areas that are hotly disputed. In 2002, there's a section where uh, it's right by the roof, There's a section that's disputed between the Coptics and the Ethiopians. And in 2002, there was a monk 
who was sitting, what they did was in order to stake their claim, they put a chair there and they sat a monk, you know, to sit there to guard their claim. And it was really hot that day, so he decided to move his chair a little bit, like inches over into the shade. Well, that was seen as an act of hostility and a violation of all the rules that they had. Long story short, these monks got into a fist fight with 11 hospitalized, fighting over territory over the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, we chuckle about that. One of the shared areas of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the front door. And so we did the tour of the church, and we saw the high places, and we touched what we needed to touch. And then we came out, and our tour guide turned us around to look at the door of the Holy Sepulchre, and he pointed out something to us. He said, check that out. There's a ladder sitting up there above a window. The door's below, but there's a ladder sitting up there. And that ladder, that ladder has been there since the early 1800s. It's called the immovable ladder. It's been there for 300 plus years, and no one will move it. You know why they won't move it? Because they're afraid someone is going to be upset. This tenuous, hostile environment between these Christian denominations is so fragile that they're afraid that if someone moves it, it's going to erupt in war. And so they just leave it there. Now, I saw that ladder, and i got to honestly tell you, my heart sank. It was one of the low points of my trip. I talked about the high points not too long ago. That was a low point. Added to that, our tour guide said, you know, the sad thing is, is because this is a, a shared area and none of them, these Christian denominations really trust each other and all the tensions and all the stuff I just described, they couldn't decide who should take care of the front door, who should have the key to the front door to lock and unlock the church. And so they decided that the only person they would all trust to lock and unlock the church was a Muslim man that lives across the way. So in other words, because the church is divided and because these sects cannot live out the commandment of Jesus to love one another as they love God, a Muslim man locks and unlocks the holiest side of Christianity every day. That's ridiculous. I saw that ladder and I heard the story about the locking and unlocking of the church. And my mind immediately went to the end of the Gospel of John, where we have recorded the prayers that Jesus offered up on the night he was betrayed. It's actually prayers that he offered up up there in the upper room with his disciples, he prayed out to God. And, and many call the Our Father the Lord's Prayer, but I would argue that this prayer captured in John 17 is, is the real Lord's Prayer, the, the real Lord's Prayer, because it's the prayer that Jesus offered up for his disciples and for the church. There's a section in that prayer where he prays for those who will come to faith because of the witness of the disciples. And if you think about how that applies, that means this prayer is actually for you and me. It is for Mount Carmel Christian Church. This is what Jesus prayed. Follow along with me. John chapter 17, verse 20. He says this, My prayer is not for them alone. 
and he's talking about the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prayed that we would be one. And when we are one, one with God, and one with each other in love, it will be a witness that the world will know that God has moved in the world through Jesus. It is going to be the means of which we will have opportunity to share the good news to all those who need to hear how they too can have the good news of Jesus. You can be made right with God through faith. And the story of the Bible from, from the book of Acts through Romans to Revelation, if you, if you read that whole section, it's the second part of our Bibles called the New Testament, what you will find is this, this, this common thread, this common theme, a call to be one heart and one mind, to be a call to be one with God, be right with God, and be right with each other. It's, it's there, and if you just read every one of those letters and books, you will see this common theme. Love God and love people. Be one with God in love. Be one with each other as you love one another. And the details of what that looks like are, are, are spread out for us in the contents of these New Testament books or these letters, these communications that we call our Bibles. But the problem is, the problem is, we put up ladders. We put up ladders. We have ladders in our life. We have ladders that we erect because we don't believe. Even those of us who are faithful in the church, we put up ladders. Ladders that prevent us from being one with God and one with each other. I have a couple of questions in the bulletin. What keeps me from being one with God? What is that ladder? What keeps me from being one with others? What is that ladder? What keeps me being one with God? What is it that, that, that prevents me from being obedient to the call? Because God brought uh, salvation and he gave me the spirit. I have all the resources I need. But many times, because as my mom said, God is the perfect gentleman. He forces his way into our hearts. He never forces his way into our hearts, but instead longs for us to respond to his invitation in gratitude. It's the appropriate response. So what is the things that keeps us? from being one with God? Is it that we are not committed to the transformation of our minds, as Paul says? Ultimately, we don't really appreciate grace 
Because when we appreciate grace, then the appropriate response within us will be gratitude. Maybe it's because we still hold on to this performance mentality which has been embedded in us, and I understand that it takes time to redo that, but, but we gotta understand that the performance mentality, not living by grace, continually living by I should, I should, I should, I'm a failure, I'm a failure, I'm a failure, uh, a God deserve, I don't deserve to be, that is not the way of grace. No, the way of grace says we are not motivated by fear of judgment, but instead we're motivated out of love and gratitude. What is it that keeps us from being one with God? Is it that we have other gods that we place higher? An addiction, a hurt, an unforgiveness, a lack of belief and acceptance What keeps me from being one with others? Jesus said, love God and love others. The two are intertwined. You can't just say, I love God, James says, and and not love others. They go together. When you love others, you love God. When you love God, you love others. It all works together. What keeps me from being uh, unloving to others? Do I have a hurt so deep in my heart where I need some serious hard work through counsel and and, and, and encouragement? Or do I have a hurt that, that, that I have deep in my heart that I, that I try to medicate by, by alcohol or pornography or, or, or workaholism or a negative attitude because of this hurt inside of me, this inaccuracy that I can't let go? And, and in effect, what it happens is, is that uh, because I have this ladder, I'm able to, unable to love God. The people in my life, the people that are near to me, are not loved as they need to be loved through me because I have this ladder preventing me from loving others. What is that? What's the ladder? What's the ladder? Fear, anger, insecurity. See, God wants to take down the ladder. God can help you take down the ladder. Remove the offense that undermines the witness, that prevents you from being one with him because, and one with others because ultimately we were made to be one, we were made to be whole. And if one part of us hurts and is not taken care of, then all of our lives are affected. If it's a wound of our heart, it will affect our bodies. If it's, a, if it's an abuse of our bodies, it will affect our heart. If it's a, think, a way of thinking, it will have translation into the, the way we do our life and the way we interact with those people. And those things all need to be addressed through the process of grace, to remove the ladder, to allow the Spirit of God into those places, to allow Him to climb up to the the window and take it down through grace, through forgiveness, through reconciliation, through the process of of, of wise counsel with with godly people, through growing up in in Christ as we learn to to walk in His ways, as He says, transforming our mind and learning the ways of God, the, the will and the word and the operative motives for us to walk in this life. He can take down that ladder so that we can be one with God and one with another and the world will know that Jesus was sent with good news that whoever you are no matter what you've done 
there's a way to come back. You can be made right with God through faith, which ultimately is the summation of the message of history, right? Let me close with you from a ble- with a blessing and an encouragement from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may, be, may with one voice glorify the God and Father our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to have gone through this journey of history, and I thank you, Lord, for this word that we've received from, from, from Romans and the theme and the call to be one. Help us to be one. Help us, Lord, uh, to be responsive to the prayer you offered up as, as Savior, Jesus, offered up that we might be one. We might be one. Just as Jesus is one with the Father, we can be two, one with Jesus and one with one another in a unity. You know, the unity that, that, that honors diversity doesn't mean that we're all the same. No, it, it, we're all different with different callings and different motives and different stories, but all coming together with one love for God and love with each other. Help us, Lord, to fulfill that and help us to identify those ladders on our heart, the doors of our heart that are preventing that oneness to happen. And help us to do the hard heart work when needed. Guide us with wisdom and, and, and strength to, to work through these things, to, to come to forgiveness, to come to realizations like, like Rick shared and opened up, being a Christian for many years, still God is working in his life and he's still seeing a manifestation of grace that is now bearing witness in his body and his outlook. And, and, and I thank you for that sharing of our brother. And I pray that that too may ignite within each of us the same work. We thank you, Lord, for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.